You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the Gospel according to John in chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We are beginning a new sermon series. It will be a brief one. It will only consist of three messages. Before we begin a new book of the Bible, we just finished, if you're a guest with us, we just finished last week the letter of Galatians that we made our way through since uh, February of this year, and we were starting a new book here in November um, very soon. But for the next few weeks, we thought as a pastoral team, it would be wise to take a few weeks to stop and reflect on our mission as a church. Now, in a moment, I'm going to recite our church's mission statement. But before I do... I thought I'd say a word about a common problem that faces any group of people that have a defined mission, whether that's a church, a charity, a ministry, any group that has a defined mission faces the same problem and they're not exempt no matter who they are. What is this problem? Mission drift. Mission drift occurs in any group that has a defined mission. What is mission drift? Mission drift occurs when the stated purposes of that group stops being the central aim that regulates their activity. So a group gets together and says, we exist to do X. And for however long, weeks, months, years, they do X. And along the way comes other great things they could be doing in one day. They don't focus on their mission and they find themselves doing less of X and a far more of a whole bunch of other things. That's mission drift. And no group is exempt from this subtle shift away from the stated mission that that group exists to fulfill. No matter who they are, we as a church are not exempt from mission drift. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to spend the next three weeks thinking through our mission. Now, to show you that mission drift occurs, there's many ways we could do that. Let me just give you one historical example. We're going to put up on the screen the mission statement of a university that was founded in New England over 300 years ago. This is their mission statement. To be plainly instructed and to consider well that the aim, that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That's an incredible mission statement. Want to send your kids to that school, right? That's Harvard University. A godless place. And that's their mission statement. You say, well, okay, Josh, that may not be fair. That might have been a long time ago. Maybe somebody just didn't remove it from their website. 
On their diplomas, there is a seal that reads Latin words. So anyone who would see the banner at Harvard or who would get their degree is going to have these words in Latin on their diploma. Truth for Christ and the church. Mission drift occurs. And Harvard University illustrates for us it's not enough to have a solid, clearly defined, Christ-centered mission statement. That's important. You, you, you need to have a mission statement so you know, what, what are we all doing here? What, what is our aim? What is our mission? We could all have different ideas of what we should be doing. Other people could have ideas of what we should be doing. But what are we all agreeing to be about? It's great to have a mission statement. But as we just saw in Harvard, having a clearly defined Christ-centered mission statement does not mean that we will not experience mission drift. So how do we prevent mission drift from occurring? We must regularly remember what our mission is. We must reaffirm our mission together. And we must consider and evaluate how to implement our mission better. Any group that doesn't remember their mission regularly, that doesn't reaffirm, hey, this is why we're all meeting, right? Doesn't say, hey, this is we're, we're doing this, not that. There's a lot of things we could be doing, but we all agree this is what we're doing, right? Any group that does not remember the mission, reaffirm the mission, and then regularly stand back and say, okay, we're doing a lot of things. Is this in line with our mission? They will drift. And we do not want to drift from our mission. So for the next three weeks, we want to fight mission drift and to say as a church, are we doing what God's called us to do? So what is our mission? It can be up here on the screen. We exist to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ among our neighbors, nations, throughout generations for the glory of God. That mission statement is out there in the foyer. If you've ever paid attention to it, that's why we exist. We exist to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, to evangelize people, to make disciples. And then to mature disciples. And where are we called to do that? In three, three spheres. Among our neighbors. Among the nations. Throughout generations. Today, we're going to focus on how do we fulfill our mission as a church among our neighbors. Next week, we will talk about how do we fulfill our mission among the nations. And then... How do we have a generational view of our mission? But today we are looking at John chapter 4. And I can't think of a better text that can help us think through how to fulfill our mission among our neighbors than this passage of Scripture. So I want to invite you now to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. I'm going to read John 1 through 30. And we're going to skip down and read verses 39 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself and did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is for the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will wor worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with the woman but no one says, what do you seek her? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
So they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you've said that we believe. But we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. (laughs) Oh, how I love this story. I'm so glad that God inspired the Apostle John to record this interaction between Jesus and this woman of Samaria in his gospel account. Now just know the amount of details and the points of emphasis are numerous, and to discuss them all in their entirety would far exceed our limited time together. So today, I'm not going to unpack all that we just read in this story. I have a specific aim. I simply want to draw attention to the way in which Jesus engaged this woman at the well. And I want to pay attention to the way this woman engaged the people of her town. Because the way that Jesus engaged her and the way that she engaged her town is identical. And by learning from their example, by God's grace, we can emulate what we've seen here in this text to reach our neighbors. Now, did you notice the setting in this story where it takes place? The most Obvious things is, yes, Josh, it takes place at a well. We know this story is the woman at the well. And though the well is significant, there's more to the story than just the well. You say, okay, well, she's a woman of Samaria, and that's significant. Because as we just heard John put in parentheses, Jews and Samaritans hated one another, did not get along. And so the fact that Jesus is talking with the Samaritan, that's significant. Yes, it is. So the the well is important. Samaria is important. But don't don't miss the the town mentioned in this story. Did you catch it? Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. And then verses 28 through 30. We read this. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people. And verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Why is this significant? Why draw attention to where this story takes place? Not just at a well, not just in Samaria. Once Jesus reached this Samaritan woman at the well, she went to her town and she reached her neighbors. Can you see why this story helps us as we think about how do we reach our neighbors? What I want to do now is invite you to look again at John chapter 4 and this story 
And what we're going to discover is that there are three intentional steps that both Jesus and the woman from Samaria took to reach their neighbor. What Jesus did to her, she does the exact same thing. And I believe this gives us a great model for how do we, as a church, fulfill our mission to make and mature disciples among our neighbors. How do we reach our neighbors? Number one, we initiate. We initiate. Look at verses 4 through 7 of John chapter 4 again. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Notice, Jesus engages this woman. He could have drawn his own water. He's thirsty, but he's not about to, from all we can tell, pass out and die. He's not asking her, hey lady, if you don't give me water, I'm not going to make it. He, he could have drawn his own water. But he says, give me a drink. Why did he do that? It wasn't simply because he was thirsty. The text tells us why Jesus did that. Look back at verse 4 again. And it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now we can skip right past that. Or just think that's a geographical detail. Because if you know where Jesus was, in order to go from where He was to where He needed to be, the region he was and the region he was going to in between was Samaria. And from what we know from Jewish tradition and writings, most Jews, out of their hatred for the Samaritans, though it would increase their journey far longer, they would go around Samaria to get from Galilee to Judea. But it said, no, Jesus had to go. Why? Well, we're given the answer. And a few other places in this passage. Look at verse 23. This is amazing. Why did Jesus have to go? Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Did you catch that? When it says that the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, it doesn't mean that God is desperately saying, hey, I need some worshipers. Hey, can somebody go out and see if you can find some? No, it means He's actively pursuing them. He's seeking worshipers. How do we know that's the case? Listen to what Jesus said in the passage we didn't read earlier. Listen, listen to verses 31-34. through 34. Jesus' conversation with the disciples once the woman walks away and goes into town and they show up, this is what Jesus says. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought Him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to accomplish His work. Why 
did Jesus go to Samaria and sit at that well? Because he was doing the will of the Father. And the Father was seeking worshipers. He initiated contact with this woman. Jesus' mission was to seek after those that the Father was turning in to worshipers. Friends, don't miss this important truth because it remains our it must remain our primary motivation for doing a mission. Don't, don't, don't miss this. Our primary motivation for doing mission must be divine initiative. Divine initiative is the foundation of mission. What do I mean by that? I wonder how often we we see the story of salvation and evangelism like this. God did all that was necessary to save us, and then He calls us to do the work of getting the word out. So God did salvation, we do mission. God didn't just accomplish salvation, God is on mission. God is pursuing people. God is at work among your neighbors. God is at work among the nations. God has been at work for over 2,000 years so that the church is being built. See, missions is not simply about what we must do. It's about what God is doing. So why should we reach our neighbors for Christ? Because God is seeking worshipers and He's using us to reach them. That's why we ought to do missions. That's why we ought to do evangelism. That's why we ought to reach our neighbors. Because God is at work and He's using us. Church, each week, over these next three weeks, I will emphasize this point about divine initiative. Because it really does have important implications for the way we do mission. Because if our first thing is what's our mission strategy? What are we... What are we to do? Instead of saying, what is God doing? What is God up to? How is God pursuing people? And how in the world can I get in on that? Then we're going to be frustrated. And we might even see a lot of people make a lot of fuss about Jesus. Like John chapter 6. When a whole bunch of people see him do miracles and the crowds are coming and then Jesus opens up his mouth and says some things and the whole crowd goes away. Just because there's a lot of activity doesn't mean we're doing mission. So how do we know? Divine initiative. God is doing this. We're joining him in his work. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus Carrying out the mission of God. We see him carrying out the mission of God the Father. And the woman at the well, what is she doing? She's modeling the example of Jesus. Notice this. He initiated conversation with her for the sole purpose of sharing who he was and what he could give her. Why did he ask her for a drink? It wasn't simply because he was thirsty. He wanted to lead that conversation to and he did it quickly, and he did it creatively, he gets to that point, do you know who I am? (laughs) Because if you did, (sighs) do you know what I can give you? Let's talk about that. 
See, he leads in initiating this conversation. And notice what she does. She initiates evangelism. She then leaves her town, leaves her bucket, leaves the well, goes back and tells everyone about this one that she has met, this unique man named Jesus of Nazareth. And friends, we must do the same. There are people that God has placed around us that need to hear the good news about Jesus. And the first step in sharing the good news is that we initiate. Who is God putting beside me? Who is God placing in my life? How can I intentionally take a step closer? How can I invest in a relationship that allows me one day to open up my mouth and to share with them the good news? Friends, I I pray that we would all make it our mission to make time for people that God is bringing into our life, that maybe right now God is bringing to your mind, that we would make time for them for the sole purpose of sharing the good news with them. And it begins with inviting them to be in your life. When's the last time you've invited a lost person, a neighbor, a stranger to your home to have hospitality for the sole purpose of sharing with them the love of Jesus? Is that how we see our homes and our dinner tables? Maybe that's what you're called to do. Invite people over. Hang out. Maybe you're at a gym. Maybe moms, you're in a, in, in a mom's group. Are there people there you can invite Invest in more. You could get to know more. You could say, hey, you know, we've only talked a few times, but I would, I would love outside of the, the, the mom's group to hang out with you someday. Build a friendship. But do it for the sole purpose of one day being able to say, hey, can I ask you a few questions? We share the good news with them. Now, before moving on, I want to answer two questions that I think will do us good to reflect on for just a moment. Why don't we initiate evangelistic opportunities with people? See, one of the reasons for this message is because you and I probably aren't doing that, if we're honest, are we? I'm not. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I felt prompted by the Lord. As you know, our family moved last weekend from a house we've lived in for 12 years, and for the last four or five years, we've had wonderful neighbors next door in their late 30s, three little girls. We have loved on them, invested in them. They don't go to church. They don't appear to know anything about Jesus. We've had good conversation and good friendship. A few weeks ago, a guy was in a motorcycle accident, was hurt really badly, but was nothing life-threatening, thought he was going to lose his foot. He had complications from surgery this past Monday, and before the nurses could get to him, in the hospital, falls over dead. 
I have shed a lot of tears the last few days, not only because we just moved from that house. These were our neighbors. And my heart is broken that this dad, who is younger than I am, is gone. But a few weeks ago after his accident, in my mind, in my heart, I said, Josh, you should find a time to go over and tell him about Jesus. And I did. Didn't. I thought, would that really serve him? This guy's hurting. And that opportunity is gone. This week, I've had to repent a number of times before the Lord for failing to do what I should have done. So why don't we? Why don't we initiate evangelistic opportunities where the answer is found right here in the text? I just read it a minute ago. John chapter 4, verses 31 through 34. The disciples come back. You remember what we were told earlier? Why they weren't with Jesus? They went into the town to get food. Jesus is apparently, from the journey, tired, weary, hungry, thirsty. They bring him back food. And they say, eat something. And obviously by the response, Jesus doesn't say, oh man, guys, thank you, I'm so hungry. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they say, did, did somebody give him some food maybe we don't know about? Jesus said, Sorry, my eyes have just lost where it is. Have no, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Oh, I'm hungry. But I have a greater spiritual appetite than a physical appetite. Is that us? Is our physical appetites greater than our spiritual appetite? If the things of the Lord are important to us, but often we neglect them for other things. How many of us right now are like the disciples who are distracted by what Jesus is doing? They just stumble into this situation worried about food. Here's Jesus ministering to this woman. She's about to go tell her whole town and they're saying, Jesus, you really need to eat something. Jesus is like, no, no, you, you need to get focused. You're distracted by physical things. Do you have spiritual eyes to see? That's, that's why we often don't evangelize. Because we see our houses as places of comfort. Not as places to invite the lost and the broken and the messy. And people that might slip a bad word. 
So why should we then initiate evangelistic opportunities with people? Here's why we don't. We're often distracted by our needs. But we don't have eyes to see the needs of those around us. Why should we initiate evangelistic opportunities with people? Listen to this. Verse 35. Do you not say, Jesus is saying this to his disciples, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is reaping wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Listen, here's what Jesus Christ is saying to us today. Friends, look up and look around. Seguin and the surrounding communities are ripe for the harvest. There are people who need to hear about Jesus. The Father is seeking worshipers. And here's the good news. He's using bumbling fools like us to open up our mouths and to grant people new life. So what must we do? You must pray. And I don't just mean, hey, can I request that you do this? Can, can I call for this? For every member of every family and for us as a church, could we pray, Lord, give us opportunities to be a part of the harvest. Pray that for this church. Pray that for your life. Who are you putting? Who is the woman at the well for me? Who's that person? I'm to start engaging to one day be able to open up my mouth and share the good news with. That brings us to the second thing we're to do. We're to initiate. What do we do next? We must testify. Both Jesus and the woman at the well. Do you notice what they did? They both testified to who Jesus was. And both of them did it in a compelling way. Both of them testified to who Jesus was. And both of them did it in a unique, compelling way. Notice what Jesus did in this situation. He doesn't always do the same. So if we have a one-size-fits-all approach, we, we may be missing wonderful evangelistic opportunities. Notice what Jesus did in this moment. He engages her in conversation that is personal and private. He used water and physical thirst to illustrate what he could give to her. And when she still wasn't getting it, he went straight to the heart. He said, would you call your husband? And he knew she had husbands. And why did he do that? To shame her? Here's why I think he did it. He wanted to reveal to her that he knew her sin, yet his offer had not changed. I can almost imagine her saying, oh, you say you give eternal life, you don't know who I am. And Jesus says, let's just cut to the chase. I do. 
you ask me for water, I'll give you a drink. You will be satisfied. And notice what the woman does. It appears that she doesn't do something private and personal. She goes back to her town and it's public. She proclaims to the people of her town her testimony. She says, this man knows everything about me. And probably everyone in town knew everything about her too. She found a compelling way to share her story. And we must do the same. Can I say a brief word about sharing our personal testimony with people? I think sharing our testimony is such a powerful thing, but I just want to give us a little bit of direction there because I hear people share their testimony all the time, and I'm always amazed by it. I love hearing people's testimony. It's so amazing to hear how God saved people. But let me, let me just insert two things here. One, as I said a minute ago, if the only way you know how to share the gospel is to share your testimony, you might want to just think other other ways because that's not always going to work. We don't want to have our hands tied because we're like, oh, this is, I'm sitting here on a plane and this person's asking me spiritual questions and I don't know how to lead to my testimony. And that's the only way I know how to share the gospel. Let's, let's grow in that, knowing how to share the gospel outside of our testimony. But when we do share our testimony, here's, here's just the other second thing I would share. Listen, how you came to Christ is not as important as who Christ is. Spend less time talking about how you came to Christ, how bad you were. And what happened? And more about who Jesus is. Because listen. Listen. There is no power in the fact that you used to be blind and now see. There are people who get off drugs who never come to Jesus. There are people who clean up their act because they follow Islam. So if all our testimony is as powerful, it's because, well, I once was like this and I'm once like this. A lot of people can point to their neighbor and say, well, I, I, yeah, I used to do that too. What saves is Jesus. Make sure people know who He is. Who is He? What did He do? Why did He come? And what does He offer them? That's what we got to get to. Somehow, somewhere in the conversation, we got to draw their attention just like Jesus did. Didn't take them long. Hey, would you give me a drink? Gee, well, do you know who I am? I'm a woman. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus Jesus says, do you know who I am? He gets to the heart of the matter. It's about who Christ is. It's about what he's done. And isn't that what she does in her testimony? She tells people of who Jesus is. Do you know how to tell people in a winsome, compelling way who Jesus is? And why He matters to you. That's where your testimony comes in. It's not just that you were once like this and now you're not. It's, listen, I once did not have eyes to see my need. I once thought Jesus was just a great moral teacher, a cool guy. Everybody should like and respect. But I had no idea He was the Son of God who came to be in my place, to obey where I couldn't obey, to die in my place, to take the wrath of God. And one day, I was aware of my sin, my brokenness, my mess, and God showed me the answer in Jesus Christ. Do you know how to tell people that? In a winsome, compelling way? What must we do 
to win our neighbors. We must initiate. We must testify. Lastly, we must invite. We must invite. We have not done evangelism until we've invited people to come to Christ. Evangelism didn't end at testify. Time does not allow us to look at all the other places in this passage. Just look back at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then back in 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. What did she do? She didn't just tell people about Jesus. She said, come on. Don't stand there. Don't walk. Run. If it's true that He is the Messiah, what? drop everything. Let's go. How often is our evangelism just... Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Gospel. Let me tell you about your sin. You need a Savior. You know, the Ten Commandments. And we never say to people, what are you going to do? If what I've said is true and Jesus is all that I've said He is and most importantly, all that He said He is and all that the Bible says He is, why are you wasting time? Even if you don't believe in Him today, are you willing to, to learn more about Him? Here's what you can't do. You can't ignore Him. You can't push Him off. you got to do something. Do it now. See, the purpose of John's letter was actually evangelistic. He says at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, this. Here's why he wrote this entire gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. The whole point of this gospel was not for us just to stand back and just to marvel at Jesus. The point of this book, John says, I told you many things. I could have told you many more. Here's why I did. So that you would believe and have life. I didn't tell you about Jesus just so that you could be aware. I told you for a purpose. Now I'm calling you to come. Believe. I want to close with these words earlier in John's gospel. This theme of testifying and then calling people to come. It's not just evident or apparent here in chapter 1. In chapter 4, it began in chapter 1. Listen to these words as we close this morning. In chapter 1, verses 29 through 51. Listen to this theme again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. What What does he do? And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man whose ranks before me. 
because He was before me. I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of God. Of Israel. And Jesus answered. Because I said to you. I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things. Than these. And he said to him. Truly truly I say to you. You will see heaven opened. And the angels of God. Ascending and descending. On the son of man. Did you hear that? People kept seeing Jesus and saying, that's him. What does Andrew do? He goes and gets his brother and says, come and see. What does Philip do? He goes and gets Nathaniel and says, come and see. May we be a part of that glorious work of calling people to come and to see. As we close this morning, One final question.
do you believe? What do you think about Jesus? Is he respectable, honorable? What do you believe? Whatever you believe, why do you believe it? Are you willing to learn more about who he is? I'm excited to tell you that in November, we're going to begin the gospel according to Luke. So that we can, as a church, see and savior the Lord Jesus Christ together. And my prayer is that that book will stir evangelistic zeal and If you're here this morning and you don't believe, you will see and believe. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words and this message that you have prepared for us today and help us to leave this place different than we came in. The temptation for us all is to have listened, been stirred, but to leave and go back to things as normal. Lord, would you increase our spiritual appetite greater than our physical appetite? And would you give us a heart to reach our neighbors for the glory of your name? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.